Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent, and I have my lovely wife with me this evening, Desiree Vincent, to discuss marriage from a Christian perspective. It's going to be kind of a discussion in an overall sense, talking about uh, marriage as an institution uh, with our Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith as the basis for it. Um, and discussing some of the principles from there, and then taking some audience questions. We had some questions that were submitted ahead of time that we want to address, and uh, we'll look at those. And if you have any questions that you would like addressed or comments you'd like addressed during the show, feel free. If you're on YouTube watching live, you can put it in the, the live chat section of the video, or if you're on Facebook, you can put it in the comments on the live video, and those will show up in our feed so we can uh, take a look at those. But with that, we're going to uh, to dive right in. Um, but before we get started, just kind of give a little background on our relationship, kind of set the stage for uh, the discussion this evening. So we thought it might be fun to like just share a little bit about us because we're married, but um, <laughs> we are coming up on 10 years almost, which to us feels like a long time, but like, I don't know. A lot of people, it's not. That's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a long time, but it also doesn't. I don't know. It's too long. That doesn't know. <laughs> but um, we have kind of like a, a, like, I don't know, like an unusual story. Most people, when they find out I'm from the West Coast, you're from the East Coast, are like, well, how in the world did that happen? <laughs> and Daniel always says that we just met on Facebook, and that's we not. Did. <laughs> It's not like, it's not how it sounds though. <laughs> it's not like you're just scrolling Facebook and randomly found each other. But um, Daniel's uncle, I grew up with him in another RB church out in Oregon since I was a kid. And I didn't know Daniel existed until we were like in our 20s and we got tagged in a Facebook message together. So it was Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> it was in a roundabout way. It was Facebook in a way. But yeah, so... That's we met um through family and chatted for a while, met in person. Things moved pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yep. I ended up coming out here for a teaching job and then lived with a lady at church. We got married and yeah, 10 years almost. 10 years, yeah, this yep. December. So I mean, there's a lot more to that, but it's kind of funny. Yep. That's just kind of a, a snapshot of where we came from. Um yeah. but also kind of setting the stage where we also don't want to come across as, you know, we're marriage experts and we're, you know, telling everybody what to do as right. it's a marriage. We're, we're not doing that at all. In fact, we were just kind of, we were joking. We were kind of bickering a little bit before we got on the episode about something. Our kids broke we the toy box and I'm upset about out, it. But, <laughs> but yeah, we're, we're not coming across as experts, but we, we do want to talk about the topic and we do think it's an important topic to discuss. Um, and I think there's some helpful principles that we can gather from obviously the scriptures as our ultimate authority, but our confession, I think lays out some very basic marriage guidance that we can, that are based in biblical principles that we can utilize. So we'll dive right into that. So if we look at the 1689 Lone Baptist Confession of Faith, it's a chapter 25 of marriage. We'll look at paragraphs two and three. So I'll read the paragraphs and then we'll do a little exposition of them. So paragraph two, marriages ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife for the increase of mankind with the legitimate issue 
for the increase of mankind with the legit i'm sorry for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue and the preventing of uncleanness if i can read correctly that would be nice <laughs> paragraph three it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent yet it is the duty of christians to marry in the lord and therefore such as profess true religion should not marry with infidels or idolaters neither should such as are ungodly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresy, which uh, that last part there is kind of interesting. But those are kind of the general principles that our confession brings out on marriage. So paragraph two, and I'm actually going to be pulling, um, I think some, if not all of these passages are actually the proof texts or some of the proof texts from each one of these paragraphs that the confession has. And that's one nice thing that's that's really neat about these confessions is they generally have proof text. So if you want to know where in the Bible the, the writers got these principles from, you can just go to the proof text. And it can at least point you in the right direction on where in the Bible did these things come from. They're not just making these things up. They're taking biblical truth and applying them in the confession. Um, but we see Genesis 2.18, which is the establishment of marriage in creation it says and the lord god said it is not good that man should be alone i will make him a helper comparable to him and so here this is right after adam was created um adam was alone and he had no partner there was nobody with him to compliment him so to speak and adam didn't find among all creation any suitable partner for him um, and so he was naming the animals being in dominion over the creation that God had given him and commanded him to be over, but he had no mate comparable to him. He was lonely, and there was something missing there that uh, that uh, God had not yet created. Um, but we do see the principle being laid out once Eve was created. We see the principle of leaving father and mother, clinging to your spouse, becoming one flesh, and the husband and wife are now focused on each other as it relates to their relationship. No longer is their family that they grew up with their primary focus, but the primary focus now is uh, their spouse. And it's also laying out the, the natural establishment of uh, a man and a woman as being the qualifiers for um, what marriage is to be. Uh, this is why we see Paul talking in Romans 1 um, that homosexuality is such an evil thing because it violates the created principle that God has established. God has established a natural order of a man and a woman are to be united in marriage, and that is not to be done with uh, man, man, woman, woman. And, and Paul says as much, Romans 1, 26, 27. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use. Notice the word there, natural, the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So they're violating the natural order that God had laid out, which was to complement each other with man with woman and woman with man so the violation of nature is what makes that evil so our confession lays out the biblical principle of the establishment um, of marriage 
Des, I know you wanted to say something here. Yeah. Um, I think just like talk about how husband's wife compliment each other. And like, it's, um, you hear submissive a lot. I feel like sometimes that word gets a, like a bad rap amongst women, like thinking maybe that you don't have like any kind of a role in the marriage or you just are like, I don't know, passive or inactive. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a good place to look for that would be Proverbs 31, where like this lady, I mean, I, I don't want to read the whole thing, but like she's a busy woman. <laughs> like she's doing a lot of stuff. She's not just sitting at home all the time, you know, doing absolutely nothing. She's she's going out. She's she's purchasing land. You know, she's um, she's clothing her household. She's waking up early. She's doing this. She's doing that. And um, and all of that is honoring her husband as she's um, working and going about and doing her business. She's not just like. I don't know. She's not just like sitting at home and just like, I'm submissive and I'm never going to do anything <laughs> ever again. So I don't know. But then the, then the husband praises her at the end. So, you know, honor your husband through working and participating in the marriage, right? And being a blessing to each other. Yeah. Each person in the marriage relationship has their own role. Mm -hmm. It's not just the man doing all the work in the family and the woman doesn't, it's just a freeloader. Yeah. And then it's not the woman doing everything and the husband is just a bomb. Yeah. I mean, it's a complementary relationship. The husband and wife are helping each other in the the practical needs of everyday life. And yeah. husband typically is going to be the breadwinner. So he's focusing on that. And the wife is typically um, going to be at home, mm -hmm. set, taking care of the family and the household things. And that that's kind of the principle you see in Proverbs 31 is the woman is whatever she's doing and she does work outside the home in, in there to some extent. So mm -hmm. it's not certainly not that the woman can't do any work outside the home, but um, whatever work she does, she's focused on her house, right? She's not a career woman. She's not living her life to the fullest in a selfish way. It's her life is focused on her family, whatever she does. Right. And ultimately, the husband is still the leader and we should be submissive. I think I was just trying to make a point that like, when you say submissive, it doesn't mean that you have no role. Right. You, you know, you're or you're a slave. Right. Or you're not just like, you just shut up and sit down. Yeah. Now. Yeah. <laughs> like you can be actively helpful and still yeah. respect your husband. Mm -hmm. And that was honoring him in Proverbs 31. So, yeah. yeah. That was just one thing. Oh, another thing I was going to say. Um, so like this woman is super, super busy, right? She's like keeping busy. She's doing this. She's doing that. And um, and it's um, like honoring her husband and in doing that. But I think like the, the flip side to that would be like women struggle with the results of idleness. Like in um, Tim, oh, sorry. First Timothy 5, 13 through 14. Um, and besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but gossips and busybodies, saying things that ought not, they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows to marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So, you know, us keeping busy and being helpful around the house can also help us to stay away and avoid those other sins. Of gossiping, being idle, 
being a busybody. I was explaining that to Taya today in the car, that women struggle with that yeah, <laughs> a lot. That's, we want to talk it, about stuff, but we shouldn't always be doing that. <laughs> I think why Paul tends to point out the weakness for women is, is um, busybodiness. And for men, it's other things. It, Paul isn't doesn't let men off the hook, but there's different sins, I think, that he emphasizes because I think both sexes are prone to different things. Yeah. And I think for women, it's being more gossipy, chattery, busybody. Yeah. And men, it's it's other things, maybe anger. Um, so, yeah. But Paul's solution for that is, at, at least for widows, in the, in the context here, Paul is giving instructions for how widows are to be dealt with in the church. How are they mm -hmm. to be handled? Their family should take care of them primarily. But younger widows should get married so that mm -hmm. they don't fall into sin, right? So what is, he gives the the practical solution for avoiding sin um, in idleness is to get married, have children and manage your house. Cause you don't really have a lot of time to be a busybody yeah. when you're busy with those things. Unless you're not managing your house. Right, unless you're not managing your house. And you're doing that instead. Right, which does <laughs> But happen. there's always plenty to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, so if you're busy with those things, there's little time to sin. I think that's Paul's point here. All right. So moving on in paragraph two of chapter 25 of the confession, um, it talks about another purpose for marriage, which is procreation. And we can see this in places like Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, excuse me, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gave dominion for uh, or to the man and the woman to rule over creation and manage it. But he also said that they're to be fruitful and multiply. So part of the purpose of marriage is certainly uh, procreation. The human race needs to propagate or it doesn't exist anymore. That's It's just very practical reasoning here. Um, and to go outside of that means is what the Bible calls immorality. And um, those things are listed as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God and the scriptures, those who live in such ways. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Um, and these sins against the marriage relationship, they all go back to that created mandate, just like homosexuality violates the natural order and the created order of things that God has established. Sexual morality in general violates the created order because it's violated or it's twisting and um, distorting what God intended those institutions to be for. And so it is sinful. Um, in God's eyes. And what we see in our culture now, the normal course of things is to hate kids and to hate marriage. I don't want to be married. I don't want to uh, be tied down to somebody. I want to go live a free life, travel the world, you know, get a camper yeah. and just live off the grid with, you know, nothing to do with the outside world. I want to do what I want to do and kids and a husband or a wife weigh me down. Uh, that seems to be um very common today we see that a lot you know if you're on tiktok or you know looking at instagram reels you see that kind of lifestyle come up frequently it's like, like a dog yeah. is the same as kids yeah the it's dog not... yeah, the dog <laughs> it is isn't. the same as a kid or... yeah no it's it's simple it really is um 
it, kids and a spouse tend to get in the way of people's dreams and what they want to do. And so that's a worldly mindset. The normal course of things that God has established is that we are to be married and we are to have kids. That's the general course of things. And I say general because there are exceptions to that. We don't believe that um, you know every person is called to be married or every person is called to have kids. There are exceptions to that, but those are that's not the norm. That's not the norm. The created order is get married and have kids. Okay. That's the general norm um, that we have. Um, and, and also kind of along the lines of the worldliness that we see, we want people want to be able to twit utilize and twist God's created establishment um, like sexuality, but they don't want the consequences of it. That's where you see abortion mm. coming in and, um, a lot of the contraceptives, not the contraceptives are bad necessarily, but they tend to be used as a way to cop out of um, the consequences of sinful behavior. And so um, it's just that people take good things and they twist them. Uh, and that's the nature of sin. It's, it's a distortion of the good and a lack of the good. But talking about the, the exceptions to the rule, um, we do see Paul in first Corinthians, like first Corinthians seven, one through 11, talking about how singleness is good. Singleness is a good thing. And in fact, he encourages people if they don't have, um, you know, if their natural passions aren't burning and they're not, a, you know, desiring a marriage relationship that they should remain single and serve the Lord in that way. Now, I don't think he established it as a command. I think he was establishing it more of a concession and more guidance, but we do see there's biblical precedent for being single. So Paul is is uh, certainly not restricting people uh, if they want to get married or saying that God's created order is bad. He's not doing that at all. He's really just giving practical advice. You know, hey, if you you know if you can serve the Lord as a single person, then do it. You know, you won't be distracted by. Um, you know, family life and all that. Uh, if you want to serve the if Lord calls you to this, we're serving this way, then then do it. Um, if you meet those kind of biblical guidelines and criteria. Um, and then the same with, with having kids. Um, you know, but some people can't have children and some people, uh, you know, are, are called to, to have a lifestyle like that. And that's okay. There's nothing... You're not cursed of God or anything like that. That's, um, you know, God has put you in that situation. And, and as difficult as that might be for some, that uh, that doesn't violate any scriptural commands or principles. We're talking about the general order of things, the general order, really the ideal um, situation, I guess, uh, for the most part, is marriage and, and kids. And, and then there's the establishment of being fruitful and multiply again. Um, this does not mean, as some will teach, that uh, you should have as many kids as possible if you're married. It doesn't mean that at all. Um, you can have, you should have kids if you're married, but uh, you don't have to have as many kids as, as possible. There's no biblical precedent for that. The command to be fruitful and multiply um, was given to the human race as a whole, who were at the time Adam and Eve. It was not an individual command. It was a command to the human race. And we see it reiterated in Genesis 9 with the Noahic covenant. 
establishing it as a created mandate it doesn't just apply to a certain people. It's for all creation. All of the human race is to be fruitful and multiply. It's a general command um, uh, given to uh, given to the human race. Um, and so from that, you could argue, you know, if this family over here is having kids, we're having kids, these people are having kids. It's the human race is being fruitful and multiplying and fulfilling the earth. It's not you personally being fruitful and multiplying and fulfilling the earth as if you have to propagate the entire earth yourself. It's a human race collective command um, that's given. And so that takes, a you know, it should take the weight off of you anyways, in terms of, you know, how many kids, you know, that's, that's a conscience issue. Mm -hmm. That is a decision you need to make between you and your spouse and God. Um, that's ultimately um, what it comes down to within the biblical principles that, that we have. Um, and then finally, one more thing I'll say here, the confession talks about um, legitimate issue and talks about being married with legitimate issue. And I'll go back here real quick. Um, let's see. Paragraph two, uh, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and the preventing of uncleanness. So I just want to look at um, Dr. Renahan, Jim Renahan talks real quick. This is his commentary. I've quoted this multiple times. Get it. It's very helpful. You have to. Yes, you have to get it. <laughs> You're a horrible Christian. Um, page 469. He talks about legitimate. He says, at creation, it was also the Lord's purpose for our first parents to procreate and populate the earth. Notice the, the use of the word legitimate. This term does have its full and technical sense here. Children of married couples are legitimate. Probably these statements were intended to safeguard matters of inheritance and identity. Such offspring had legal rights and claims before the courts of the land. For most of the 17th century, this would have understood, been understood by Paedo-Baptists to have a reference to registered baptisms. Interestingly, the bare-bones parliament sought to alter this to a secular registration of births. The Baptists would have preferred this arrangement, end quote. So the, the confession... Um, and I know you asked about this when I read it for the first time. Really, like, right. what is legitimate? Like, what mean? does that mean? And yeah. I know I was I was a little taken aback by that. Yeah. Like, what does legitimate mean here? And, and it it's a legal term, basically. These are legitimate children. They're not bastards. Well, why does it say basically. issue though? Legitimate issue. Yeah. Why? Does I think that issue? might just be technical language that's okay. being used. But the the children are legitimate. They're yeah, legitimate. Okay. They can receive an inheritance. They can. Uh, it's they're children that are born in a real legitimate marriage. They're not illegitimate children, so to speak. So okay. I think that's kind of what it's referring to. Um, biblically speaking, that children who are born in a marriage relationship should be considered legitimate. Okay. But yeah. Do you have anything to add? Um, it's kind of like a side note, um, not about what you were just saying, but like what we've mentioned within this topic of getting married, having kids. Um, we've talked a little bit before about how it kind of like triggers us where people will say things like, oh, I don't want to get married. I don't have kids because then then like my life is over and I can't do anything <laughs> and I'm never going to have fun again. And, and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, wouldn't you rather have fun together than alone? Like... I mean, you're going to be sad and lonely and grow old and have nobody with you. And, um, and I don't know, we, 
we kind of like to like go on adventures with our kids and stuff. It's fun. You know, like this summer we drove across the country with the kids and they all have good memories. What'd you say? A couple summers. No, that was last summer. Last summer? Yeah. You said this summer. No. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Last summer. Last summer. Yeah. We didn't do it this summer, but I mean, obviously there are more challenges with kids. It's more work, Mm -hmm. but it also can be more fun in a lot of ways too. You know, seeing the world through their eyes and I don't know. Ultimately, this is all about honoring the Lord and glorifying him. But like we can also enjoy our life as parents and being married, enjoying each other. There are blessings that you miss out on if you don't get married and have kids. So I don't know. I mean, if you don't have the opportunity, you don't, you know, call to that's different. But like if if you're just thinking that like everything's over, we'll never go anywhere, we'll never do anything like that doesn't have to be the case. No, that's just that's put a, your little kids in their car seats and go where you want to go. Yeah, ultimately, that's <laughs> I think generally speaking, that's a I just don't want to do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hard work to get your kids to go in the car, get out the door, and yeah, especially go on a trip. But you know, just drag them along. Yeah. Get up and going. We're going. Yeah. And then it's they really... learn to be like little cool adventure kids. Yeah. They're not like little boring homebodies. <laughs> <laughs> Make them work out with you, all that stuff. I don't know. It's fun. Did you have anything else to add? Not on that topic, no. All right. And finally, um, I guess there was one more section here briefly. Um, The confession talks about marriage as being a way of preventing uncleanness. Paul talks about this again, 1 Corinthians 7. He lays out a lot of marriage principles and guidance in that chapter. Um, but marriage is a way to prevent um, sexual morality. Um, so there is this sense where God has provided marriage as um, a means to, practically speaking, um, to enjoy your spouse and to, uh, you know, uh, enjoy your spouse in, in, in that way that God has prescribed. And so... Uh, you know, it, it it prevents temptation, as Paul talks about, you know, husband and wife should not be apart for too long or it can lead to temptation. So these are there's just practical ways that God has given us to be able to stay away from sin. Um, it doesn't always have to be through prayer or through um, these other means, although those are certainly necessary and helpful. But in terms of you know, neglecting practical means of avoiding sin, God has definitely given those to us to help us to avoid um, falling into sinfulness. And uh, real quick, we'll look at paragraph three again. Uh, It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent, yet it is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord, and therefore such as profess the true religion should not marry with infidels or idolaters, neither should such as are godly, be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresy. So the overall principle here is marrying the Lord, marry someone who's a Christian, um, who's not way off in left field holding to some uh, wicked heresy. What? I must drop my phone. Oh. It's fine. Keep going. Um, I find that interesting that it, uh, it talks about that in the confession, not just someone who's living in wickedness, but someone whose doctrine is off too. You know, you shouldn't marry someone, you shouldn't marry a Mormon, you shouldn't marry a Roman Catholic if you're a Christian, you shouldn't marry 
um, a Jehovah's Witness, etc., um, someone who's maintaining damnable heresy. You should not be in close companionship with someone like that um, because their theology will affect how they live and uh, it will uh, determine where their soul goes. So it's just as bad as someone who's living an actively wicked lifestyle um, in, in claim, you know, and you're trying to reconcile their life with being a Christian and trying to, uh, to get to know this person better in a romantic way that is forbidden in the scriptures, not to be unequally yoked. Um, and I think there's a lot more to that passage than simply just not getting married. I think it has a lot of applications, but I think that is a, a good and necessary consequence of, uh, that passage that Paul gives, um, uh, in second Corinthians six, uh, that we're not to be unequally yoked. We can't have the same closeness with an unbeliever um, because they're not of the Lord. And it, and I think Paul really is reiterating Old Testament principles. Old Testament principles, um, like we see in Nehemiah 13, 25-27, where people of Israel were forbidden to marry pagans, right? And there were other places in the Old Testament that forbade uh Israelites from taking foreign spouses because they would lead them away from God. Um, and then Paul gives the principle uh, in 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So that's the, that's the caveat. She's free from her husband. She's free... Um, from the covenant of marriage after husband dies and then she can marry, but she needs to marry in the Lord. So it's that principle of being yoked equally. Um, and then I think you can see this, another application of the principle from Proverbs 13, 20, that a companion of fools will suffer harm. So a companion is not someone that you know, or that you're acquainted with, that you're made aware of or whatever. It's someone that you're close with. A companion is someone that you're you're with all the time. You're with this person as your buds, right? These are the people you hang out with all the time. You're going places with, you're found with, these are your companions. Mm -hmm. And the principle that the scriptures give us is not be companions with people like that because they will lead us into harm, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other part of that passage is he who walks with the wise is wise. So people the people you surround yourself with will have an influence on you. Um, so we have to be careful who our, our close companions are. And being married to someone is the closest companion you can have. So why in the world would you want to marry someone who hates God? I mean, what is there to really love about them, mm -hmm. you know, per se, uh, in, that, in that romantic way? There isn't. They hate God. Why in the world would you want to... Uh, be with someone with that close companionship. The scriptures do not know of any such thing. That's just mm. irreconcilable. So, um, is this a, mm -hmm. okay? So, um, I think one thing to note is um, scriptures like First Corinthians seven twelve through thirteen, where Paul says, "To the rest, I say, I not the Lord." If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce her or he should not divorce her. And if any woman has has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, 
she should not divorce him. And I believe that is referring to a situation where maybe somebody were you were both unbelievers and then one got saved. You think that's probably what that's referring to, right? Yes. And then, then you're still bound by the marriage and mm -hmm. you should not divorce them because they're not a Christian. You should stay with them. And I know that we have at least, um, one friend and or friends from church or maybe more that that situation has happened and then by the grace of god like the the wife was saved first and then the husband was later on saved as well so you i mean you could be like you know a means of grace for your spouse to be saved after you've been saved as well but like yeah it's not like grounds for divorce if you're already married so right yeah, there is a there's the a hard distinction yeah. between going into a relationship willingly right with an unbeliever and then finding and then contrasting that with finding yourself in a relationship with an unbeliever after you've been married yeah. and you're saved. That's very different. Yeah. Yeah. So we we've only found one grounds for divorce in all of the Bible, really. Never really seen yeah, anything other than uh, as of right now, I don't see any other mean just except, sexual immorality yeah infidelity, infidelity that seems yeah. to be the express command of of our lord and yeah Christ what is we find yep but yeah just in case there's any confusion on that but paul does address that specific situation mm -hmm. yeah lots of the bible is is everything we need for life and godliness even right. down to practical applications yeah and even paul yeah. he wasn't even married but he'll tell you all about right. it you know, he can see it and use. And he definitely had the authority too as yeah. a, as an mm -hmm. apostle. But yeah. Um, so looking at a shifting a little bit. So we looked at the confession. Um, I want to talk a little about little bit about dating and courting. This um, kind of will go into one of the questions that um, was posed to us before the show to be addressed on here. Um, but dating versus courting. Um, you know, is there any biblical precedent for one or the other? Um, and I guess it, the answer to that question depends on, on what you mean by dating and courting, because I think that means different things to different people, depending on who you talk to. It's yeah. not, it might mean the same thing to some people. Yeah. 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 It's not always, um, you know, a cut and dry, uh, thing, but what we do see, um, is cultural, and maybe old covenant prescriptions surrounding um, the marriage relationship. We do see, for instance, with Mary and Joseph, there is this, the betrothal. And my understanding is that betrothal at that time meant it was almost like being married. You know, if you, you had to get a divorce essentially to break off the engagement, hmm. um, which is what Joseph sought to do with Mary when he found out she was pregnant. Yeah. He sought to divorce her, but they weren't married yet. Why? Because their betrothal, their engagement was so... You were basically considered married at that point. It was binding. It was binding, yeah. However, that principle of uh, Mary and, jo Mary and uh, Joseph being uh, you know, joined together that closely in terms of the, how the engagement was applied is not prescriptive for us. Um so we have to be careful not to take some of those historical realities, those cultural appropriations that were uh, applied in scripture and apply them to us um, without any prescription from scripture to be very careful about that. 
so we, you know, we, we can take examples and maybe seek to emulate the characters of biblical, of biblical people. We should, as, as much as they're obeying God's word, but we shouldn't just take something that they might have done in a specific historical context and say, well, that applies to us today. Look what they did. You know, <laughs> not necessarily. We have to be careful about that. So when it comes to you know, dating and courting, I don't personally see any prescription on what that looks like necessarily um, in terms of there's like some sort of courting or dating process in scripture. We don't see that. There might be some hints, like I think in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about how you should treat someone that you're engaged to. Um, but in terms of what engagement itself looks like, the Bible doesn't give us those kind of prescriptions, at least that, from what Not I've Not like how about. much distance needs to be between us right. and the can couch. You hold a, <laughs> can you hold hands? Oh, no, they're touching pinkies. We're in trouble. Get and... your holy ruler out. Right. Oh. No, we have to be careful about things like that. It's easy to become um, setting this list of things you got to do as if that's the standard of holiness in a relationship. And you know, it, it's not necessarily the case. So be really, really careful about that. Um, the The overarching principle is, if you're in a relationship with somebody, you're courting, dating, uh, whatever the case might be, you're to be pure. You're to be chaste. You're not to be engaging in sexual sin uh, or, or flirting with sexual sin while in that relationship. You have to be very, very careful about that. Uh, that principle is binding and prescriptive to Christians, for sure. Um, now, I do think the world does tend to take dating to a more flippant level in terms of, I think you can see principles there where the, the relationship between um, a man and a woman is typically very flippant. There's no real desire to be married. It's just more of a fling or a fun thing. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is you could argue that goes against the the created order in as right. much as it's not really, you're not treating the romantic relationship as it's intended to be, which is mm -hmm. for marriage. Mm -hmm. You're treating it as a way to have fun and to just, you know, pass the time or whatever the case, what people, what do people call it? Casual dating yeah. or recreational dating or right. I can't remember the term that yeah, I think that is unbiblical, yeah. but I think you can quote date or quote court uh, in a way that's seeking to, uh, as a Christian, that's seeking mm. to abide by the principles of the created order. I want to yeah. get married and settle down. Okay. Yeah. That If you do that through dating in a way that is biblical or you do that through courting, then do it. Yeah. You know, those are the principles that we have. Um, and, and in terms of keeping ourselves pure, uh, I think the principles that are laid out for that are going to look different for different people. Ultimately, it's your conscience uh, following the prescriptions of Scripture and maybe the situation that you're in, it, you know, and different people, different family structures. It's going to look different for different people in terms of what courting and dating is going to look like, what rules you might have. Mm -hmm. As long as they're consistent, whatever structure you have is consistent with Scripture, go for it. You know, there's no ten steps to a good courtship or whatever the case might be. That's garbage. We don't we don't believe in that. Just obey the scriptures. You know, you have the principles that are there. Yeah. Um and that's and you will be safe within those guidelines because it's consistent with God's word.
Yeah. So if you rely so heavily on like a step type system or mm -hmm. rules and ignore your heart, you know, you could have like a major heart issue going on and then just be trying to follow these rules. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you rely too heavily on that, I mean, and you've got, you know, ultimately it's between God sees your heart. He knows mm -hmm. what your intentions are and whether you're following the rules or not. So we ultimately need to honor God like we do in all parts of our life. Right. right? So were you going to talk about the seventh commandment anymore? Or anything mm -mm. Like? Okay. I, I think like another helpful guideline would be like to remember the fifth commandment. Children are called to honor their parents, mm -hmm. honor and obey their parents. And um, that if you have godly parents, if you're, if you're still under your parents' authority in your home and you're pursuing courting and dating um, and you've got godly parents, specifically a dad, I think um, that's a mercy. I, I believe like, at least in my life, like, like my dad had helped me vet other people and like protect me from things that could have been a lot worse, you know? So I always joke that like everybody before Daniel, my dad called them fruitcakes <laughs> and Dan's the only one that didn't get called a fruitcake by my dad. So I married him, but, <laughs> but, um, although I did have to endure like, you know, 12 hours of talking in a restaurant, <laughs> but you came out on top and that's barely, the important thing. Barely. <laughs> But yeah, I love my dad. Yeah, he, he's serious about his daughters. That's a good thing. But yeah, I mean, as much as it might, especially if you happen to be an adult when you meet the person that you're pursuing, you know, you might feel like, oh, I'm too old to ask my parents. I'm like, there's not an age in the Bible that says, okay, when you turn 18, you don't honor your parents anymore. <laughs> we were talking about this the other day. It's like, that's not, we don't see that anywhere. That's just cultural, like American stuff. You know, we should still honor them. They're godly. We were told in scripture to heed wise counsel. If you have godly parents, they can be a help to you in this. And if you don't have godly parents, um, maybe other Christians, mm -hmm. the pastor could be helpful. If you want a chaperone or you just feel like you need guidance, wise counsel is good, right? Yep. But always seek wise counsel with yeah. thing. Yeah. There's no there's no age cutoff point with as it relates to honoring your parents and certainly obeying your parents. There's no age cutoff in the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's just you obey your parents. The only exception to coming out of your parents uh you know, headship is when you're married. Yep. That's the only biblical principle that we have. The only biblical establishment as it relates to marriage that we have man shall leave his father and mother to cling to his wife not your parents your wife and the two shall become one flesh so mm -hmm. that's really the only establishment as it relates to um, a person's life that brings them outside of the authority of their parents mm -hmm. it's marriage and now you're under the authority of your husband if you're a a wife and the husband is under the authority of the church these elders mm -hmm. and ultimately Christ. But in terms of that institution immediately uh, with the couple. Yeah. Another thing um, that I find is really annoying and you're going to, you hear it all the time in the world. It's like pretty much 
the gospel to the world is to be like, listen to your heart. <laughs> but the Bible literally says the opposite of that. Yeah. You know, they say like the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Yep. That's Jeremiah 79. So, and the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 12, 13. So, so like, it's not that you don't, I don't know, have feelings when you're in a relationship, but you know, if you're, if that's your, if that's like what you're talking, what your goal is to listen to your heart, like that's a dangerous place to be in <laughs> because yeah, we have wicked hearts. So. Mm -hmm. Yep. We tend <laughs> to follow that, which are, which are natural hearts desire, which is sin. And so, yeah, if we rest in our hearts, we're going to always be in a bad place. We have to follow the scriptures, mm -hmm. which transcend our hearts and shed light on our ways. So that's really where we need to find our guidance from. Um, Andrew, let's see. Let me, good point about the fifth commandment not going away after 18. Yep. Yeah. That's, Is that Andrew work? No, I don't. Oh, different so. Andrew. Okay. Looks like a different Andrew. Um, yep. Great hey, point. Andrew. Andrew, thanks for the comment. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that really is a cultural phenomenon. You know, people, yeah. a cultural institution. Well, you're 18. You can do whatever you want. Now you can, yeah. uh, you know, you can smoke. You can do whatever, pretty much. Uh, you know, you can join the military. You can do all these things now that you couldn't do before. Um, that's a cultural uh, you know, imposition. We're not, there's nothing in scripture that actually gives us the precedent to do that. It's not necessarily a bad thing to, you know, kind of set an age of maturity, but in terms of the commands that God has given us, there's no age limit uh, in terms of those things. There's only the institution of marriage that breaks us from the authority structure of our parents. Now, we still honor our parents, even though we're married, that doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the authority hierarchical structure, you know, that changes uh, only with marriage. Moving along here, do you have anything else you want to add to that? Um, I don't think so okay. right now. Yeah. All right. So looking at some audience questions here, we had two that were submitted um, ahead of time. Andrew, uh, oh, from Discord. Yeah. Good to see you, brother. Um, so uh, this one's from J.D. Warren, and this was from Twitter. He asks, should the state have any say... Um, at all in regulating who may marry, or is it strictly a Christian institution? Um, that is, that's a pretty loaded question. Um, and one that I think gets kind of, there's some debate surrounding it. I think it, the real answer to that one, I don't think there's any kind of cookie cutter answer to that. I think it's, it depends. It depends. But I think as it relates to Marriage is an institution. Marriage is not a strictly Christian institution. Yes, it's instituted by God, but if you're talking about the, you know, the church-state relationship, it's not merely a church institution. It's a creation institution. It's a creation mandate. It's part of the common kingdom, so to speak. It's um, what all mankind, believers and unbelievers, are to participate in as created beings, as created human beings in the image of God. Uh, we see that very clearly, uh, as we talked about before, in Genesis 2, and we see it with 
in Genesis 1 and seeing it uh, in Genesis 9 reiterated again, these concepts of being fruitful, multiplying, which obviously have to be in the context of marriage and this understanding that um, that the human race as a whole has to do these things in order to propagate the human race. So marriage is not strictly a Christian institution. Um, so we, we have to keep that in mind. So what would the role of the state be in this case? Again, I, I would say it probably depends. Um, you know, the, the role of the state is to protect uh, from and punish evil and promote the good. We see that in Romans 13. And I guess you could argue that part of promoting the good for a government would involve marriage, which would imply regulating it, especially when it comes to protecting the most vulnerable from exploitation, like, um, you know, pedophilia and trafficking and things like that. So you could see some sort of regulation, maybe the state saying, well, you should, you know, this is as far as you can go as it relates to a sexual relationship. You might be able to argue that. I'm not necessarily convinced of that. Um, I guess you could argue either way, but I think you could maybe go down that road. But we do know that, you know, marriage, at least in our culture, as it relates to, you know, you're making vows before God, you're making an oath to somebody else. Um, you know, I guess you could call the vow an oath. And that typically comes with the marriage covenants in Western cultures, at least, especially in the U.S. Um, our confession would see uh, oaths as a form of religious worship. It's not just a promise that you're making to somebody. Oaths are to be done in such a way that they are religious worship. So you can argue that if you're doing that in the context of a marriage ceremony or a marriage covenant, that you are doing an act of religious worship to God. And in that case, the government shouldn't have anything to do with that. Government shouldn't be regulating you know, what you say at a marriage ceremony or anything like that as it relates to worshiping God. They shouldn't have any involvement in that. So I think it would depend on the situation. Um, principle, though, the government should not have any, um, the government should not have any regulation over religious worship. And mm -hmm. if, you know, the, the marriage ceremony that you're doing is involving religious worship, they shouldn't be involved in that um in any way shape or form um but again i think you could possibly see some government uh, intervention i do think that the concept of government licensing you to get married i think is kind of ridiculous um again i don't have any biblical precedent to say that's wrong but it does seem petty to me that the governments would require you to register and to uh to get a certificate that you have to sign um, I think that that seems uh, kind of silly to me. Yeah. But, and it's a pain. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of, you had to do it. And you have to do nope. it within a certain time. It's just, you have Both to pay money. Money and taxes yeah. and all that stuff. And that's stuff. probably a lot of yeah. is taxation and keeping track yeah. of it. But, yeah. It is hard to respect the government when it comes to marriage now that they are kind of including almost like the skies is the limit as far as how they define marriage, you know, because we know that biblical marriage is only between a man and a woman, mm -hmm. but the government's like, Oh, we're handing out licenses to anybody now. So it's kind of, it's hard to respect them, but, but you know, we do it, you know, yeah. cause a, we don't cause a problem, try to live peaceably and do what we're asked to do, do our taxes. All yeah. That stuff. It also, I think kind of depends on the, 
it could depend too on the government structure that you happen to live in. You know, in our government system in the U.S., the states have a lot of power over what can happen. If something is not given to Congress in the Constitution for them to do, it's left to the states. So the states have the technical legal authority to regulate marriage. Uh, the mm -hmm. Constitution doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you can kind of make the argument either way. I guess it, it probably kind of depends, too, on where you live. So, mm -hmm. yeah, good question, though. That's That's not an easy one. Um, another one from Brother Isaac, who's also in the Discord channel that uh, Andrew's from. Um, he had some questions surrounding marriage. So one, uh, he wanted to know confessional or historical attitudes towards engagement. Number two, length of engagement or timing. Number three, courting versus dating. And I think we already addressed number three. Mm -hmm. um, but number one, confessional or historical attitudes towards engagement. Um, I didn't see anything specifically confessionally as it relates to engagement that I remember when I did in my research, but in terms of what was going on in 17th century England surrounding our confession of faith, I think you can uh, see some principles relating to uh, engagement. Um, you know, you, you had, I think it was either engagement or marriage could be done pretty young in the teens Although I don't think that was that was very common, um, but in terms of what people saw as kind of the the model, I don't think there was uh, any real model that was seen in terms of you know the age uh, or you know the length of time or anything like that as it relates to our confessional writers or or the Puritans. One thing I did find in my research that I thought was interesting was Puritans, which you could put particular Baptists into, into that general category, although you have to kind of make distinctions, but the Puritans were the ones, Puritans were ones who pushed against arranged marriages and mm -hmm. sought for uh, marriages to be more about love and, and mutual affection for the other person rather than the arranged marriages that you typically saw between, you know, kings, a king of one nation and the princess of another nation or something like that. Um, and in the confession specifically talks about things like that. You know, I'll refer mm -hmm. again to paragraph three. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is a duty of Christians to marry in the Lord, yada, yada, yada. So you do see this consent, uh, this consensual language that's being used here. An arranged mm -hmm. marriage was not done by consent. An arranged marriage was done forcibly. You had to marry this person, whether you liked them or not. You had to marry them. Um, so I do think that there is this this attitude of um, of consent, and that it needs to be something that people go into willingly, not being forced mm -hmm. uh, into. And I think let me just check real quick. Doctor Renahan talks about that a little bit. Uh, about arranged marriages about the consent part oh right hold on bear with me uh in the first he dr renahan says on page 470 he says in the first place there is a good a general statement all sorts of people may marry the language employed here is very specific while it is lawful note the term again for all sorts of people to marry this is not an undefined universal statement it is limited by two terms judgment and consent 
The first has reference to questions of minority and majority. English law provided minimum ages for marriage, 14 for boys and 12 for girls, but also required parental approval for marriages of persons under 21. The term judgment has reference to this matter. Consent has a similar sense, but may also be extended to two other matters, arranged marriages and those without proper capacity, though perhaps of age, to make decision for themselves. Additionally, Dickinson asserts that this also addresses the Romanist era of priestly celibacy. Gospel ministers may enter the state of matrimony with clear conscience. So there's a lot going on in our confession as it relates to those things, but I think you can see this general principle of consent being applied. It goes against this principle of arranged marriages, um, which our writers of our confession did not see as biblical. And I think you could argue that as well. Um, let's see. What was the other thing he had? I'm talking about the length, length of engagement. engagement. Yeah. It's definitely mm. don't see any biblical command or, or anything like that as it relates to uh, the length of an engagement. I mean, Des and I were engaged for six months. Yeah. We were engaged we, in maybe May, about seven, maybe. married in December. Yeah. So, but we knew quickly that we wanted to get married. We, yeah. we knew we were the one for each other. We didn't take very long to figure that out. And I think that being long distance helped too with that. Yeah. And I was a teacher. It was either going to be Christmas break or summer. Yeah. So we <laughs> so, kind of had to pick. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have the luxury of living in the same place and being mm -hmm. able to draw things out. We, we kind of had to pick a time and move with it. Yeah. And we didn't want to wait. You know, we just, yeah. it's like, we love each other. We, everything's in place. Let's get married. We don't need to. Yeah. We, we had already sought counsel. We had already, um, you know, we were engaged and then we, we got counsel from our pastor. He mm -hmm. gave us uh, marital counseling. Uh, we didn't just rush into mm -hmm. it. And I think that's a principle too. Uh, even though we didn't, um, you know, we didn't wait years or a year or mm -hmm. whatever the case is, we still went through and got counsel from. Right. Um, I remember telling my dad, I wanted to, I wanted to marry you. And even though I was still in school and Mm -hmm. kind of telling me, you know, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to do this or that, but Hey, go for it. You know? Mm -hmm. And, and then counseling with our pastor and working through things. And um, have a question about our engagement. Oh yeah. How did the engagement period go for you guys being long distance? Let's see if you remember the timing. <laughs> what do you mean? So we got engaged in May. Got engaged in May. And but I actually moved out here in August for the teaching job right so part of it wasn't long distance yeah so i lived with an elderly woman at the church yep so part of it was long distance and part of it wasn't and so all of our marriage counseling was in person with pastor steve so that was a blessing that was helpful yes it is good I, I don't know i i'm glad that we had that time period you know because you talk a lot long distance i think i think that's a benefit of long distance talking mm -hmm. a lot because yes. i mean you get to know each other a little but you know you have mannerisms and the way that you do everyday life like it's helpful that we had at least some time together oh yeah not yeah. that you have to but i'm glad that we did it definitely so. helps yeah yeah i think the timing piece like i don't think like 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 with pretty much everything in christian practical living there's not going to be like a hard fast rule but like um if you're plowing through red flags Right. And your pastor says, no, your parents say no, you know, in yeah. that situation, six months. I mean, you know, it's like, 
well, the Lord didn't say anything to me directly, but I'm like, well, is the Lord using your pastor or your parents to help you see that, you know, to, to gain wisdom and insight, you know, ignoring those things. I mean, if you plow through and you get married, don't be surprised if there's going to be a lot of trials ahead. I yeah, mean, there's gonna be trials anyway. I, I think, but like you know, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, I think that's that's definitely, definitely something that could happen. That. Yeah, not necessarily, I mean, but I think generally it's more likely to. I think it's yeah. more likely to happen that you're going to have a lot of problems that you yeah. wouldn't have otherwise. So and don't we, rush yeah. into a relationship. Um, that your pastor is a we, great resource. I mean, yeah. and your parents. Yeah, yeah. You you have to, and it depends on the people. You know, yeah. we were we were long distance. We were. Um, I mean, we were pretty young yeah. uh, when we got married, but we were still kind of on the far end of college and school and we were working, mm-hmm. you know, so there's a maturity aspect there. So there's there's all kinds of different factors that you have to come into play. For some people, it might be better to wait longer. Mm-hmm. And for some people, maybe just moving forward quickly, as long as you've, you know, done so meeting mm-hmm. biblical parameters of what a godly spouse is and there's... um you know, there's no red flags that need to be dealt with from a biblical perspective, Mm -hmm. then you should, there's nothing that I can see that holds you back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it it just depends on, on your situation. Again, these are a lot of general principles we're giving. We're, we're trying to be careful. Yeah. We're not saying, well, the Bible says you have to do this specific thing. Um, No, the Bible gives us general prescriptive guidelines and then you fit into those based on your situation as long as you're fine yeah use wisdom (laughs) use wisdom listen to wise counsel don't be proud (laughs) yeah 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 so you know there's there's different principles there that can that can be helpful but yeah length of engagement i i think that might be another cultural Mm -hmm. kind of quote institution that yeah kind of oh you you know you have to be married or a you know, you're engaged for less than a year. There's something, you know, you're moving too quickly. Yeah. And and the world sees it so differently than the way we see it. Like, I mean, a lot of the times people are already living together. They're, they're like, they're like playing marriage, you know? And they're like, well, I mean, no rush. We'll get married late. And it's like, well, what's even the point? Yeah. (laughs) You know, so for a Christian, it's a lot different. You know, that's a totally different totally just, different situation yeah and like there's all these there's a lot of i feel like worldly rules that people might hear like well don't get married till you've traveled the world or don't get married so until you you know finish call i mean i mean i i see the practical reasons behind a lot of these things or like you have to buy a house first you know like me and daniel lived in, in an elderly couple's basement, five hundred dollars a month. A month. In a basement. <laughs> it was, I mean, we have great memories of that. I mean, yeah, it, was it was fun, a humble beginnings, right? And I remember being like, you, you know, know, you watch money? HTTV and like it's all these engaged couples are like, let's get our house, and I'm just like, are we doing this wrong? Not necessarily. <laughs> There's nothing in the Bible that says you have we to buy together. a house we before you get married. Working, we paid our bills we paid off our debt we got all that stuff done and then we you know we live in a townhome now we've kind of moved up the chain a little bit but you know it, there's again there's no prescription that says you have to live it this way yeah. necessarily it just depends on where you are as long mm-hmm. as you're living in those biblical uh, parameters 
Yeah, and so. I think without Christ too, people want to make a lot more rules because I mean, I don't know. It's like without Christ, you're pretty much doomed to fail anyway, it seems like, without the mercy of God to try and get through marriage at all. So it's like, well, let's set yourself up with all this money and all this extra cushion so that hopefully you guys won't get divorced. But I mean, but it's, you know, it's instituted by God and it's meant to glorify God. So mm -hmm. do you have some more questions? Um, or Come. Let's see. So Z, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name. Z, Miguel, in William Gage's writing, in his time, it took three weeks between betrothal Whoa. and marriage. <laughs> but his definition of betrothal isn't like the Jewish betrothal. Rather, it's like our modern practice of engagement. According to him, there was a contract. But he also clarifies that the Bible doesn't specifically state a period. Okay. Yeah. So there's an example of, of someone who took, you know, some liberties there and, oh, this might be a good uh, practice to use, but, you know, I'm not giving you any biblical principles. But, I mean, that's, that's pretty that's fast by our standards today. <laughs> Practically you know, speaking, it might be hard to throw a wedding together <laughs> and all that stuff if you want to have a wedding. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, well, that's not inherently sinful, I guess. But... Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. Oh, oh, I did want to tell you, and oh, I, yeah. I know this kind of puts us on the spot, but there was another question. It was on Facebook, and it was oh. a while ago. It was having to do with um, Christian books. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want me to questions. try and find I'm sorry, it? Rashad. Here it is. I found it. Thoughts on books about marriage. Oh. I haven't, honestly, I haven't read a whole lot of books on, specifically on marriage. So I've read parts of books on marriage, but I haven't read like, okay, here's a book I've sat down on marriage specifically. He did write more right there. Do you want to, he, that's continuing his question. Do you want to read the rest of his question? Are can Christian based books more of a hindrance to healthy biblical marriages or are they mostly helpful? I'm thinking of a comment a reformed pastor made years ago that he doesn't recommend marriage books because when he and his wife began to read them, it actually created marriage problems, LOL. Um, I guess I could see that, especially if I think the problem is with some of these books that are trying to uh, lay out these guidelines for marriage, they typically, I would have to say, I would have to guess that they're not doing so based on biblical principles it's mm -hmm. more of here's a pragmatic way of getting a good marriage yeah you know it's kind of like the what people do with the daniel fast from mm -hmm. uh the book of daniel in terms of the fast or the the diet that he went on for eating vegetables versus meat then people run with that and they write books on it and say here's you know here's how to lose weight on the daniel fast or whatever the case is in taking principles and applying them in ways they should not or maybe putting their own experience in there and maybe taking their, the, the reader's attention away from scripture and focusing on that person's mm -hmm. anecdotal experience. Right. And I think I, I can see how that could be a problem because maybe you're trying to, well, the guy said in step 10 to do this and our look at our marriage is now it's yeah. not working. Yeah. It's like, well, cause ultimately you're looking in the wrong place. Well, there might be good things in those books that might be helpful. Um, the, Ultimately speaking, you have to look at 
your marriage in light of the scriptures and mm -hmm. is it consistent with a biblical lifestyle is it consistent with a biblical relationship mm -hmm. um we overcomplicate the christian life unfortunately we create all these rules and lists and mm -hmm. we tend to make things way over complicated we just we just need to live by the prescriptive ways that the scriptures have given us and you will be just fine it's really that simple <laughs> It's yeah. not complicated. We make it complicated. Um, so that's not to say that all marriage books are bad, but I think that I think what you might mm -hmm. find out there, and that might be why there's tension and problems, yeah. is because maybe it's people trying to use their own anecdotal experience rather than using the principles from yeah. the scripture, which is really where you should be grounding your your marriage, anyways. But. Yeah, and we've seen like. There's a lot of stuff on like Instagram, like marriage podcasts and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is what we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> but we're trying to keep it based on the, you know, the confession of the word right. of God. But like even Christian ones we've seen, they're like getting on there and they're saying, Well, this is how often you should do this and that, and like all this like weird personal stuff. And we're like, what are you doing? Like, this doesn't seem at all what Christians should be telling each other to do this and that. We should just be pointing each other back to, you know, scripture. Mm -hmm. Like um, our pastor, he, I, I text him before this to make sure, but he says this thing um, in every, every marriage sermon I've heard him say, he'll say this thing. And he said it wasn't his quote specifically, but he'll say marriage is simply a function of being a Christian. And I think that kind of like has to do with what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Like it's a function of living the Christian life. The principle yeah, of the Christian life applies to the principles of marriage. Per right? se about marriage. It's, yeah. It's just another way of living out the Christian life. If you're living yeah. a godly life as a married person, you're living as a Christian. There's nothing unique about it in that sense. Uh, it's just another way of glorifying God and, and obeying him. Yeah, and our marriage counseling with Pastor Steve, we thought, uh, I remember we were like, oh, we're going to go and he's going to talk about all these like specific little nitty gritty issues. And we're going to work through all this stuff. But like mostly he pointed us back to Christ mm -hmm. because marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And that's mostly what he drove home over and over again. And that like over the years, you know, things that we go through, that's what we need to remember more than anything yeah, else. Yeah, a lot of those things are worked out by just... Are you, is there sin in your life that you're holding on to? Well, you're obviously not looking to Christ. If you're living in sin yeah, and that's causing tension in your marriage. So you solve the sin problem. Then, you know, your relationship starts to heal that. I think that's what you're going to find, at least in our anecdotally, that's what we found. And obviously, and ultimately speaking, you're going to, you know, if you do take your eyes off Christ in any situation, including marriage, uh, you're going to, have a hard life. The way mm -hmm. of the wicked is hard. That's what the scripture says. So you're going to have a difficult time if you're going to be living uh, in sin. And that's really, that's really it for any, anything in the Christian life, but in marriage too, you know, Des and I, <laughs> we're married. We have, we have bickerings and, yeah. and differences and we get on each other's nerves, but yeah, you know, we always have to come back or apologize. Or, yeah. And not that there's ever times where you shouldn't seek any outside no, 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 counsel no. or, you know, like you've come to a, an issue that you can't seem to work through. You get counsel and you try to work it mm -hmm. out. 
I mean, not everything is always clear, cut and dry, but yep. Yep. generally speaking, if you keep your eyes fixed on Christ, you're going to see your sin and you're going to repent of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then repent to your spouse. Right. Make things right. Okay. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we should That's be what doing. Should be doing. It's easy to say what you should be doing. Mm. It doesn't always happen. Mm. Yeah, it does. It's always the worst part. Well, when we're sanct when we're fully sanctified. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully this has been a helpful discussion. Um, we thank you for joining us. Thank you for all the, the input for the questions ahead of time and the input in the chat. We really appreciate it. And uh, we hope this is helpful. Everyone have a great weekend and great Lord's Day. And I will see you guys next week. Take care.